You are turning into a millennial. Welcome to 80s Music Exposed, the podcast in which we review all the best albums of the 80s, one month at a time. We will break them down, give you the skinny, and duke it out over whether you should or should not dig these back out again. If you are ready for an 80s music deep dive, from Public Enemy to Wham, Eno to XTC, Madonna, Hair Metal, Reggae, and all points in between, then crank the boombox, turn the Walkman up to 10, and let's go. Now, from the kitchen, Chris and Henry. Thank you for tuning in to 80s Music Exposed. I'm Henry. And I'm Chris, and I have a cold. Ugh. But I'm going to soldier through. Are you, are you, you're, you're not taking cold medicine, are you? Uh, is whiskey cold medicine? Kind of. Well, then I am. It'll help you power medicine. through it. So this is... Um, 80s music. 80s, right. And we review records from we the do. 80s every month. And this is episode like 10 Maybe, or 11. It's like 12 because we've had a couple double months, which is what this one is as well. Right, a, a special double issue. Yeah. There was so much, so many good albums or important albums that came out in the month of October right. for 1980. We had to split it into two episodes, Henry. And this is episode two. If you missed the first one, you can go back and listen to it, but you don't have to. They're not really. There's Sometimes we connect a narrative between the two. We should leave cliffhangers when we do a double episode. That's true. If you're a completist and you have not heard the first (laughs) half of October. (laughs) Put it on on the thing. Henry, we also have a new segment that we've added in the past couple episodes, which we brought over from our other podcast, which is we drink whiskey. Every episode. That's right. Now, we're not alcoholics. We just like to take the edge off when we're talking and have a have a whiskey. And so, Henry, what is our whiskey that we are drinking? So, we are still drinking Dickel whiskey. We are. This is our third episode in a row, I believe, that we're still working on the same bottle of Dickel. And, but there's, I mean, there's reasons. You can't, pl- I mean, you have, you really have to be like a hardcore well, we're drinker. not we're not drinking to get drunk. We're just we're we just sip having on a it. sip while you know a couple men having a sip. I'll be honest. In the first days of our podcast, we were going at it pretty hard there for a while and had to had to subtly back off a little bit. <laughs> yes, but now we are on our third episode in the uh, in a row of George Dickel uh, Barrel Select. So. I think I'll, I think I'll try to commit to next episode bringing something a little new in. All right, look forward to that. <laughs> Sound good. What is it about that time period that we can't get our timelines right? Like right now, we're having to sort through dates in different different sources are saying they came out in different months, right? Right. So we got people giving us feedback online like, oh, you guys suck because you can't get the dates right. But it's kind of harder than you think because yeah. a couple <laughs> of these records even that we're going to review today either came out at the end of October or like November 2nd, mm. which I mean, if you're For really, oh, complete. if you're holding us to that, I, you must love this show. No, the truth of it is, is that we're not so tied to the dates as we are in collecting records to look at together. Right. 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 I mean, the day, the month that it was out being, being absolutely factually accurate is not the goal, right? Wow. Is that true? Is that right? Is that where we're at these days? The truth of the record. Is that where we are? Uh-huh. Is, didn't AOC say something like so that? So there's this set of facts and there's that set of facts. There's my facts and your facts. Is that what you're saying, Henry? Well, one of them is right. 
But whether I put it in this month or the other month, because I don't know, it doesn't make a difference. <laughs> right. Henry, real quick, one other thing I thought you might, I know I saw in your show notes, since we didn't have any significant events, there was a, there's kind of a new event that's happening uh, at the beginning of March, a documentary that's coming out about a person that we reviewed their record, <sighs> right, I, I believe, on the last, one of the last couple episodes. I think we mentioned it, actually. Uh, we may have even expressed something about it back then, but the news has started to come out, and it's going to go live. It's a documentary about Michael uh, Jackson and the... Uh, is it called Finding Neverland? Yes. Right. Leaving Neverland? Leaving Neverland, okay. Does that sound right? I think so. I'll look while you talk. But uh, the reports are that there are interviews with the two boys he was involved with, some fairly damning things about his molesting them. So uh, the wonder really is at this point is if it's going to impact our cultural our cultural judgment of Michael Jackson. He's been a celebrated. It is called Leaving Neverland, yeah. by the way. Yeah, he's been a celebrated musician forever and lauded forever. How are we going to judge Michael Jackson now that we know he was a child rapist? Right. So look for that. <laughs> right. I, I don't know how to say it, but that, I mean, we reviewed triumph. The record wasn't that great, but you know, if we make this through to uh 1980, whatever, we're going to have to get to, to thriller and we're going to have to just call it right. Henry, tell us though, let's get back to happy stuff. Tell yeah. us about the first record we're going to review. Okay. We're going to talk about, Making Movies by Dire Straits. And why we want to just play a song? Let's do it. We're going to play Skate Away. That, that song, Skate Away, that was, I heard that all the time as a kid. Did you? Did you really? Chris in and, my mind. Chris and I became, uh, became friends in the mid-80s, uh, 85. Yeah, yeah, 85, 86. One of the first things he did as my friend was he made me a, a, a tape, right? It's probably, you know, we always close the show with, I made you a mixtape. It was like something right. like that. And it really set off probably a lot of things in our life and one of the things that we bonded over so much. But it was Brothers in Arms, which was like, it, that was their fifth. Yes. So it was like two after this. I don't know why I didn't go backwards and listen to it. This record was platinum, but it was not on my radar back then. I didn't even know it existed. In well, fact, Brothers in Arms, I only knew about it because play the guitar on the MTV. Yeah, they had a huge hit. Which that was we'll, it. Obviously, we'll get to it. And I think it was the video that helped it more than anything. But yeah, let's record. talk. Let's talk Look, about. Let's talk about. I'm just giving you my history of right, dryer right, strings right. and what I know. So it's the third record. the The thing went platinum. 
these guys were a great man, <laughs> right? Interesting, was- interest, interestingly enough, I didn't know this until we started researching. I guess they were a four-piece until this point. I didn't know about the brother. Did and you? then they became like a power trio who kind of occasionally brought in studio keyboardists. But, um, yeah, yeah I didn't even know that Mark Knopfler had a brother that played I didn't guitar. either. I didn't and did you find anything about the acrimony? Was there some sort of like, do they never speak again? Because not only did Mark Knopfler's brother leave during the recording of Making Movies, his brother, Mark, went back and re-recorded all his guitar parts so that he wasn't on the record. Well, that's a dick move, man, right there. That's that's like so it smells like they had an argument. Yeah, sounds like there's some acrimony there. But I didn't, but I didn't I find know, anything about it. I, I think I've picked up on, and somebody can correct me. Somebody in Twitter could correct me that Mark Knopfler is cantankerous. The guy didn't show up for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction that they did for him. Okay, I didn't know that. And refused, uh, just didn't want to play. They were trying to get Dire Straits to play again. Well, let me uh, step back and give my wide view of this. First of all. Um, I obviously think Brothers in Arms is going to be the definitive Dire Straits record of the 80s. However, I so associate making movies with um, late 70s FM radio, the style, that I was shocked, Henry, when we were going to cover this record when it came up. I mm-hmm. thought this record was put out in like 77, 78. I don't know why I always have equated these two bands together, and I think there's something to it. Which two? Steely Dan. Oh, really? And Dire Straits before Brothers in Arms. These kind of long songs that were perfect for FM radio at the time, which I want to make yeah. a distinction. FM radio was not what it is. Well, I don't know what it is today. But in the, in the early 80s, FM was where you heard album rock mm-hmm. or where the DJs were allowed to play uh, deep cuts or do whatever they wanted. And AM was where all the hits were played. So... This record, Making Movies, I think is aptly titled because every song is like a story. Right. And they all run longer than your traditional single. So it's kind of like a bunch of five-minute stories. But it's not wheedle-a-wheedle like uh, Emerson, Lake, and Palmer or anything like that. They're actual songs. Steely Dan was the same way. Like They they had this weird kind of their own sound, which was not really... It had a jazz tinge to it, which I kind of think I hear in this a little bit too with Dire Straits. But... It was always a story, and it was always longer than three minutes. But that's that's the only place I'm going to compare Steely Dan and Dire Straits. But as you listen, didn't you like the guitar hero aspect of it? What really was alive in the band, even though it served the song? Yes, right for sure. So, and I want to—it's a stupid comparison to Johnny Marr, only because they both sort of had a chimey kind of guitar sound. You know, like they didn't go—they didn't have a lot of distortion and stuff, right? There's. But they both serve the song. At least I feel like Mark Knopfler played in service of the song. I think if you're marking in your program in the future, um, you're marking certain episodes, you're going to find that there's going to be a lot of Johnny Marr references on this episode. We compare, don't compare and contrast to Marr. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll just say up front that we're big Johnny Marr fans, as you'll hear throughout the episode. Um, but so, Henry, I knew, I knew Skate Away and a couple of the other songs from here were ubiquitous on my dad's car stereo mm-hmm. around this time. So I knew those songs already. Did you know Romeo and Juliet, though? I don't know that because I Because that, that was a single. Right, right. I don't remember that one being on the radio. I listened to it, and I thought, this is not the Dire Straits that I that I knew, right? And that, that wasn't bad. I could still tell it was Dire Straits, but it didn't feel like the single 
Well, here's the other aspect that I want to say about this. Now that I know this is an 80s record, Mm -hmm. and now that I'm reviewing it and going back and listening to it again, even though I think Brothers in Arms is the definitive 80s Dire Straits album, this is the better album. Really? I I mean, just for my money, this is... If 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 you were to say, what is one... What is the, the... I don't want to call it a masterpiece. What is the one... Dire Straits masterpiece. I think it's this one. It might be this one. And not Brothers in Arms. Now, even the cover of Brothers in Arms looks like the It's not good. I mean, the cover of it's not good. Yeah, but it's like, it's like pastel pink and blue. It looks like a Miami Vice. I mean, it is the fucking 80s. This thing is like, to me, screams late 70s. It looks cool as shit. I know, but it's, it's definitely a different vibe. You know why I think you might like this record more is Jimmy Iovine was involved in this one. And he's like Mr. Producer guy. You know, he was in Damn the Torpedoes. Right. Made a big-ass fucking hit out yeah, of that. Yeah, he was, he was producing Bruce Springsteen. He was producing all kinds and of And if you listen to some time. of the drum beats on on this record, you'll hear some treatments that that were probably well-placed. Well, I, the, uh, and, the other and thing... And very of its time. Did you, listen to the, did you go back and listen to the record before this? No. Well, I think it's interesting. I didn't... I was doing some of my research, and I heard a lot of people saying Jimmy Iovine brought sort of a new wave production to this. And I, every time I hear that, I'm like, huh? Making movies doesn't sound new wave. But then I listened to what they were doing on the record before, and it's much more like pub rock and blues-based. Mm-hmm. And I can hear that the shift is kind of – I can hear where they're saying – uh, there's at least an acknowledgement of new wave. I think even more on Brothers in Arms, like getting Sting to come in and sing backup. I'm, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of shit. But um, I think it really helped what they were doing. But man, I, I can't say enough that I have to. Res- I respect Mark Knopfler more for the storytelling than the guitar hero stuff. Really? Like I, I, each of these songs are their own. It is almost like a little movie, and it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult to have to put put him up next to some of our other storytellers in this lineup that we're going to talk about. But, and I agree with you that he's a good storyteller. I just, I will always consider him to be like a great gunslinger. You know, I think that's what he'd want you to consider. Cause I mean, he loves that. Always. What I think be. we also need to mention before we leave this record, um, the song lay boys. I think it's the last track on the record. Um, he's taken a lot of heat for that song. And I know now it's considered homophobic. I found an interview with him from back near that period where he was just saying he was, he's, you know, putting himself in the place of a character writing a story. So it's not necessarily his opinion, right? Like Mm -hmm. the narrator in a story, just because I made up the story with a narrator, I'm not necessarily the narrator, (laughs) but I don't know if that's a cop out or, well, let's be honest. The little faggot with the earring and the makeup. Hey buddy, that's his own hair. Isn't the most friendly, but let's be honest about that. That song to me is the most overt, Mark Knopfler putting himself in the position of a guy that was moving furniture in his house, a yeah. big rednecky idiot. And these were actual things he heard those guys saying say about himself. But on the other hand, because right? he's right. on the MTV, right? Which is the beauty of that song is it's making fun of himself, but at the same time making fun of the rednecks for saying that <laughs> right. shit. But at the other hand, he wasn't afraid to use that word yeah. in a song. No, uh, which you it, couldn't do that today. No. Which you had to think most people viscerally listening to that song would not get that he's singing from the point of view of a mover. So most people would think Martin Offer uses the word faggot. 
kind of like or that he's calling somebody. Well, kind of like born in the USA. A lot of conservative people think born in the USA right. is a pro uh, USA song when it's actually not. But but you just listen to the chorus and you're like. But it's right. It's well understood that that people can write songs from alternative points of view. Right. So I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't know what Mark Knopfler actually thinks about gay guys, but I would have been a little nervous about lay boys in 1980, and I probably would have word-choiced faggot out of the other song. The other song. Um, but but, uh, but it's I mean, a, it is a it is a that's I, I find that song to be brilliant because it is a stupid pop song, but it's also got so many layers to it. So anyway, anything else you want to say about making movies? I, 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 I by the way, am going to recommend this record. Yeah, I was going to say uh, thumbs up on this one for sure. Okay, me too. Um, the next record we're going to cover is called Dirty Mind, not Dirty Minds, as I thought it was my whole life. <laughs> really? Uh, it's called Dirty Mind. It's by we Prince. We can't go Dirty Mind. <laughs> right. And the song we're going to play, Henry, is When You Were Mine. Because it's one of my favorite songs by another artist who's one of my favorite uh, artists that people give me a hard time about. But Cindy Lauper did it. Mm-hmm. I actually think she did it better. <laughs> but I, I think the context with which this album, everything about what happened with this album is so brilliant to me mm-hmm. that I forgive that it's not the better version. Because I think he was going for something very specific um, here with this sound. I want to compare this whole record to what David Bowie was doing to Usher in the 70s. I feel like Prince was to the 80s what David Bowie was to the 70s. Hmm. I think if you really want to know a guy that put a record out that said, here's what the fucking 80s are about to sound like, it's he had all these new wave elements on Dirty Mind saying, hey, all you suburban white kids... This, you're going to like this. Come over here. I'm going to teach you how to funk. And then on the other side, he had all the urban R&B and black folks and said, come on in here, all you R&B fans. I got the funk, but I'm going to show you what the 80s new wave is going to sound Could like. Be. And he brought them all together in this one record. It's, it's very calculated, Henry. It's 30 minutes long. It's not got any ballads, which is, right. which is not normal for print. It's like a... It's like a party album. And then on top of that, I don't know if you notice this, but he almost strictly sings this whole record in falsetto, which I think a lot of the record and a lot of what was going on with him at the time was about androgyny and homoeroticism and am I gay? Am I not? Does it matter? Mm-hmm. Am I a boy? Am I a girl? Does it not or does it matter? And after this record, 
I think he switched back to his regular voice for 1999 and Purple Rain and dominated the world. But I think he very purposely used the falsetto in this record, too. There's so much going on with this record, like calculated-wise, that I didn't catch the first time around, that um, it, I respect it more and more and more as I as I go back and look at it. I was less, uh, what's the word? I was less shocked by the sexual elements to it. Were you? I was actually more shocked, not because uh, of the times. I was more shocked because I was listening to a record, and I know I was thinking when I was listening to it in my car about yeah. the way you listen to records. And I know you had mentioned a couple shows ago about your, you had a moment with your child, sure. with your daughter. And I'm thinking... Was Henry having a moment with Bijou over the incest song or <laughs> over the head song? <laughs> right. And what, what, what no. was the discussion going on in the no, minivan no. about, yeah. um, hey, he's singing about having sex with his sister. No, I listen to this one alone. <laughs> so, which is amazing because as old as the record is, you would think uh, that this is tame. But it's still kind of got those elements to it. I think uh, for the... The first, the way it played out, I checked the listing to make sure I wasn't listening to demo, to a demo of it. Because oh. I, everything that I know of Prince, and I haven't listened to this record before, it's the first pass I ever took at it, was uh, great production work, lush kind of delivery, deep voice, you know, great guitar kind of stuff. And I, and I thought, is this, is this the record he put out? Because it sounds kind of punk, you know? Kind of electropunk, very much on purpose. So the first thing you may notice, and and that I I went and researched, which was also very on purpose, was the drums. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of hi hat, not a lot of cymbal. Actually, not a lot of uh, fills or just kind of a beat. Mm -hmm. But basically, what he was and his guitar is so thin and kind of tinny. But it's again, it's basically saying, guys, this is what is coming. And it's so different than what he had put out before and so different than what he put out after. It had to be on purpose. Anyway, I was very pleasantly surprised by this. I like bands like LCD Sound System and things like that. And this this sounded like kind of like an LCD Sound System record, but with with more basic punk-like stuff. Does that right. make sense? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think they... I, that's how I felt about it. I think it, they anyway. would take a lot from him. I don't, this guy had guts, man. Well... There was a lot that I read about this record, and at the time that I forgot, I don't know if you saw his Saturday Night Live performance around this time, but he's no. basically wearing like lingerie, a long jacket open so you can see his chest, and he's got like women's uh, panties on. But there was a lot of like Izzy Gay, homo- homoerotic stuff going on. And I like this quote I found. First of all, I didn't know, I just learned this on Naive. I just learned that Wendy and Lisa uh, were our. LGBT people. I didn't know that they were. You didn't know that? I didn't know that. But they yeah. asked Wendy, like, what, you know, they kept asking her around this time, is Prince gay? Is he straight? What is he? And she said, the best way I can describe Prince is he's a fancy lesbian, which <laughs> I thought was such a great quote. I just yeah. thought, well, Prince dresses androgynous because ladies like that, and he's all about the ladies. Going back and really looking at Dirty Mind, I think he really was playing with you know, what we're talk- things that we're talking about now. Why put me pigeonhole me as anything? I'm just a, you know, I'm a person somewhere on the spectrum. Deal with it, you know. Henry, one other fun thing I wanted to bring up just just to blow people's mind about Prince and maybe Mm -hmm. see what your thoughts were on this. Because of the Cyndi Lauper cover on this record, I went back and looked at some of the other famous covers Mm -hmm. of uh, Prince songs. So these are songs that he probably got super rich off of that he 
He never put out himself, I don't think. Some of them maybe. Yeah, some of them he did, but some of them he didn't. Remember Manic Monday by the Bangles? Yes. Did he do, Did he record that? Nobody I saw him play that. it live. He, but he, it's his song. The Art of Noise and Tom Jones did a cover of Kiss. Do you remember that? I do. In the 80s? Very well, yeah. That was a big th- song. Um, of course, Cindy Lauper did uh, When You Were Mine. Shaka Khan, her big hit, I Feel For You. I did not know that he, he wrote, wrote that. that. So, I did not know you that. You know, he was getting residuals on that. Of course, Sinead O'Connor, nothing compares one. to you. Yep. One of my favorite bands, TLC from the 90s, did a cover of If I Was Your Girlfriend, which actually theirs charted higher than, um, well, his never charted. I, don't, I think it was just on one of his records. Patti Smith did a cover of When Doves Cry. I did not that? know that. Yes, you did. <laughs> See? I, I put in here the time because basically every song that Morris did, he, write did he wrote them? all of them. And he basically put the time together. I, this is an interesting fact. I found out he, the reason Morris Day says the reason he put the time together was twofold. One was he needed a foil for the movie uh-huh. Purple Rain, but also he had so much material that the record company wouldn't let him put out because they were like, man, we're, we're promoting Purple Rain, chill. That he formed the time just so he could get more music out. So it was just a vehicle to <laughs> to get his music, to get more music out. <laughs> That's um, I did not know that. Sheila E.'s biggest hit, "The Glamorous Life." Yes, I can imagine. That's a Prince song. I as imagine well. that. So the guy was the guy was super prolific and super amazing. He could just write hits and give them away. And now he's gone. Think about it. Think about all those songs. If we just had those, mm-hmm. those are and those are the ones he let let people cover. You could make you could be a millionaire just off of those those songs. So oh, mighty. We still need to go to uh, Paisley Park. I know that's a dream of ours. So Henry, at the time, I didn't really know this record at all. I didn't discover Prince till 1999. Now I want to say it's revolutionary. Get it? Get it? This is my favorite Prince record. Wow. No, I'm not going that far, but I think it okay, is it's not it's not as good as as Purple Rain. It's not as good as Sign of the Time, but it's my favorite. Okay, I, and I, I think the reason why is just because I like all the stuff that he did on it. I like I like the the demo like quality of it. I like the the subject matter. I like the fact that he was taking chances, and it, it feels less commercial to me, even though it probably was successful. Uh, yeah, so this is definitely a recommend for me. Yeah, same here. Okay, Henry, what's our next record? Okay, the next record is by Bruce Springsteen. It's called The River. The song we uh, we want to play for you, we debated about it a little bit, but I'd like to play Independence Day. How do you feel about that, Chris? Go for it. All right.
Independence Day It's Independence Day All down the line Just say goodbye It's Independence Day It's Independence Day Okay, how do we criticize the boss? I think I can. How? <laughs> how do you do it? Well, first uh, of all, what I don't need from the boss is a double LP. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of knew trouble, you were going here. I had trouble sitting through an hour and a half of the boss in one sitting. Um, I, one of the things I was going to tell you is that if you're expecting a quick hit from this, like a not, this ain't the record for it. No. Well, I will I'm, say I'm, this. I'm going to see if you're going to dress it down or not. Okay, I will say this. In my opinion, and I am unequivocally not a Bruce Springsteen fan, this is the best. Bruce Springsteen record I've ever heard. I like it better than uh, Born to Run, which I know is going to shock a lot of people. But I didn't like what I do like about The River is he took out all that long, drawn out 70s. I don't know how to say it, but that that 70s feel where everybody was doing the yes and prog rocky longer shit, even though there was nothing about Born to Run that's prog rocky. It was just a bunch of long songs. This shit is lean and mean. Except it's a double LP. But every song is like three and a half minutes. There's a bunch of rockers, and then there's a bunch of ballads. But everything is kind of... You can tell he's been influenced by punk rock. Like, he's come out of uh, the 70s, and there's definitely more of a... It kind of reminded me, in a way, Henry of Tusk. It, I mean, where, really? Where you've got a classic rock guy trying to do something a little more edgy. But here is my big problem with Bruce, just in general, and we can debate this, Henry. I feel like he speaks very specifically... To a northeastern United States mentality, but see, okay, it's like a regional thing. I don't, I don't relate to factory working guys, union guys who have to go for a beer after work every day, and they just dream of getting out of that uh, blue collar lifestyle. As mm-hmm. well, I feel like he's but, so regional that, in the same way that Southern California bands like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I have trouble relating to because they sound like L.A. That's interesting because uh, I I think I feel what you're saying. Although I didn't, it I, it never sparked any kind of um, doesn't cause me to distance myself from it. There are other reasons why maybe I would have done that in the past. Uh, in in the past, I'd kind of thought of um, the E Street Band as kind of corny. Uh, with you love saxophone. Uh, I, I hate, I, you know, it, I don't, I don't like to speak ill of, of Clarence, but I've never liked, you know, a long sort of saxophone music. That's one of the reasons I wanted to get away from that other song that you wanted to put on here, is because of that. But that being said, like for me on this on this record, when I when I listen to it, and once I'm in it, I'm, if my hand is forced to to live in that world for an for an hour and a half. Or something like that it called upon me to have it I started to feel the narrative more and I started to feel like what what he was going for so I could I can't say specifically that I don't know that I found the band's music to be particularly like interesting like it didn't energize me in any way but in, in terms of like his wordplay and his attempts at trying to tell a story I, I totally got that and I also Tried to understand or tried to appreciate the uh, the sweetness, the 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 light and the dark that everybody said I should feel about about this, and I got it to a certain extent. It's so on the nose, though. It's like it so. And, and here's what bothered me. I guess I, I wish I hadn't read this. What about Nebraska? the guy? The guy had a fucking record done 
with all the rockers. And it was, I wish I hadn't read it. And it was 40 minutes long. See, and he turns it in and goes, no, I need to put some dark shit in this I, and make it an hour and a half long. I, no, Bruce, don't do that. Stop. Your dark, your good dark record's coming next. It's called Nebraska. Just, <laughs> your good dark record's coming next. It's coming next, man. Just just let this one be. B- by the way, all this stuff we're saying is kind of heresy anyway, because everything I... I was reading a lot of stuff calling this the one of the five best records of the 80s, period, by a lot of reviewers, and I am just not in that camp. Well, I just think you you, you probably are not a Bruce guy anyway, and so two an hour and a half of Bruce... He's got one point of view. He gives it to you in every song. He just either gives it to you on a slow song or a fast song. But every, you know, once you know what Bruce is about, you kind of know what Bruce is about. I also have the advantage of of listening to this album after just months after watching him play his show on um, Netflix, Springsteen on Broadway. And so outside... I don't know that I could have appreciated him as a musician as much if I hadn't heard the man try to talk about his life and the way that he did it in sort of a lyrical way that had sort of beat and meter to it and to try to tell the story the way he did as a performer was really interesting to me. Can I confess something to you? When the, when the, when the joyful songs were on, I'm waiting for it to be over. I want the sad stuff. I like that. Well, then you're really going to love it. Is that why we get to Nebraska? That's probably why I selected um, Independence Day. But what? Because I, I thought that was a special song, right? There's um, so he he has moments, and that's why I always pay attention to him, in which he kind of gets to the heart of a thing that, like in in context, that I'll always really appreciate, even if I'm not. I don't hate the music. That's the thing, (laughs) you know. It's not. It's not hateable it's just not you know great so i always listen to him it's kind of like like i I feel like he speaks the truth even if uh, i might he might not dress it up the way i want him to well back then i didn't know anything except the radio hits which of course i knew hungry heart and uh, all that now i'm going to recommend this if you like bruce springsteen if you don't I'd say skip it, but I would say I respect it. I respect the whole Bruce Springsteen thing. It's just not for me. Did you Did you read that he wrote "Hungry Heart" for the Ramones? I did not. <laughs> yes, it's a good man. Well, there's another band I don't like, so put the two of them together. And... <laughs> Are you recommending this one? Uh, yeah. I'm okay. So he's recommending it. All right. What's the next record? Oh, uh, this is one you introduced, man. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, it's called "In the Flat Feel." Not in the flat fields. I got. Did thought, you do it again? I thought the same thing as Dirty like, Mind. I like thought to it, pluralize. I thought it was plural. Yeah, it's in the flat field by Bauhaus, and the song I want to play is called "Terra Couple Kill Colonel."
Okay, so I got I got to say something right off the bat. Do it. If you didn't speak English and you read the word colonel, where do you get? How do you pronounce that colonel? Colonel. There's no colonel. R. There's no R in colonel. It doesn't make no sense. I would think that word is colonel. <laughs> okay, so this is the debut album by Bauhaus. Um, um, they were on a label that we loved called 4AD. I didn't really realize that In the Flat Field was on 4AD until going back and looking at That's it. That's the first one they ever did. I, I can't believe that. It I shocked me. I didn't know that either. I'm going to let you start talking about it. I want to see where you're... I'm interested to see what you thought. Okay, here's going back. Here's where I came down on Bauhaus. I'll give you the pre and the post. I always knew Bauhaus as an iconic gothic rock group, and I'd always considered them with other sort of darker groups of the time. Even even when I was starting to listen to music, goths and those kind of people were starting to be kind of annoying. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, sure. Like sure, yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, goth kids. They're, they're starting to kind of get annoying. Of course. And so the standard issue Bauhaus t-shirt that you had to have was like part of their fashion statement. I didn't know much about their music yet until I went back as a, probably in my 20s and heard... I'd already heard Joy Division. I'd already heard Susie Sue and The Cure. And somebody showed me Bella Lugosi's Dead. I was like, oh, this is the coolest song I've ever heard. Bella Lugosi's Dead. And that was my perception of Bauhaus. And just kind of latched onto that. I didn't really go much farther. Um, I knew about this album, but I didn't have access to it. I think I heard Bella Lugosi's Dead was on... A tape or something. Yeah, they had done had they heard. had done Bella Lugosi uh, during what they called the Bella Lugosi sessions before they got signed. It's like 4AD. the first. So I picked this up fully expecting to um, to be blown away. The truth is, I wasn't. I think that Bauhaus was good. I don't think they were stellar. I'm really divided about how I feel about it because I know that they're icons, I, and I didn't listen to them religiously, but I think they were style over substance to a bit. I find them good for one song, maybe two. This is the taste. The song that you selected, the um, the Colonel, Terra Couple Kill Colonel. Yeah, that one. That sound. That was kind of like the outlier to me in a, in amongst all those other songs. There, there was a lot of uh, interesting noises and such. Um, for me, kind of, I kind of, in a weird way, agree with Henry, but disagree in a way. The first thing is, I hate the goth label being applied. I think that's because of Bella Lugosi's is it, dead. Is it the caricature of his voice? Like, well, you know, this to me, Mark, he's doing uh, his best. These guys are obsessed with David Bowie. So, to me, yeah, he's yeah. doing his best David Bowie. Right, right. I think because they did the song Bella Lugosi's Dead, and it was in the horror movie, and they were wearing black and all that, they became this... I don't like the goth label. So, uh, my w- coming to... Uh, Bauhaus was, I saw the movie The Hunger as a kid and loved it. Right. But then my brother had In the Flat Field. Uh-huh. I thought they were an experimental band, and I had heard this yes. thing that was not true, that they were the spiders from Mars who had oh. backed up Bowie, <laughs> oh, and then when Bowie left the spiders from Mars behind, yeah. this was the band. Right. So I always thought they sounded more like a Bowie thing than a goth. I didn't, I didn't even get the goth. I didn't get the guy. To me, they sound very experimental. Like what you're hearing here to me, the part I agree with Henry, and I hate to say it, is all these songs, 
Daniel Ash is trying to do all this crazy shit with his guitar. Yeah. But I don't know that he's making good songs all the time. That's the problem. But I will it's say interesting this. to listen to though. Right. And right? And, Can I, you say and I give him an A for effort for trying. He's not these guys aren't worried about selling a bunch of records. I mean, they're trying to put out something that sounds crazy and new. Yeah. And I hate that they get labeled God. The uh, a couple other things I wanted to mention. Um, to me, Peter Murphy and Daniel Ash, and I, I'm sorry I'm using this word again, to me were the goth version of Morrissey and Marr. So Peter Murphy had a very distinctive, interesting voice. Um, I think that's what pe- brought people to Bauhaus. But Daniel Ash was just like Johnny Marr. He was the whole thing. It, it, whether you like it or not, um, what he was doing with his guitar was the whole fucking thing. In the same way that I think Johnny Marr was the Smiths and you had an interesting guy singing over top of it. So I think there's a comparison to be made there. But the reason I picked Terror Couple Kill Colonel is it's my favorite song. Of all of them. Because it's the only song. The so rest of them to me are why like... Why the hell do we these? keep coming down the same side with this? Like we might take a different way coming up the mountain, but we kind of end up in the same joint. And I also wanted to and mention, just for the sake of going down memory lane, Bella Lugosi's Dead was a... I, I don't think I went to a particular club in Charlotte called the Pterodactyl Club once in my entire life in the 80s and right. 90s that I didn't hear Bella Lugosi's Dead. They had a separate goth room. <laughs> right. I don't remember the century. That was my favorite part of the right. place. But basically, if you hung out long enough in the goth room, you were going to hear the 20-minute version of uh, Bella Lugosi's Dead. So, you know, I did go back and listen to Peter Murphy's solo stuff just to try to get a beat on where he, where he was. And where it had ended up, like in the nineties, it was like cuts you up. Yeah, that right, song. Right. Um, and I realized that these they were kids, man. They were they were children. Just going for it. And that's what they were doing. And and so I I should respect it for that reason. Like, even though they didn't quite have songwriting chops yet, they kinda they were trying to make interesting shit happen around them. And that's the thing that we should take away from a record like this. Well, I, I've got in my notes what I think of them now is, what I think of this record now is I love the effort and the inventiveness. Right. It's just a near miss for me. It's not a, It's not something you need to go back and listen to. It's like a, I hate to even say that, it's, I, to say that they're a niche sideline band is not right, but it's not wrong. You know what I mean? If you take if you take Bela Lugosi's Dead out of their catalog, I don't think we're even talking about them. As much as me and you both kind of thought we loved them in yeah. the 90s. And you if you've take, heard that song, you've really heard what you need to hear of Bauhaus. I think it's the best that they did, and it was the first thing they ever did. Henry, what's our? are you recommending this record, by the way? No. No, I'm not either. I didn't think you were. Okay. Sorry. What's our last record, Henry? Can I say something else about, oh, sure, about sure, of Peter Murphy? It's uh, uh, because it's... It, it's weird all the little things that he influenced this guy. Cause I don't want to talk about it because I may never have to talk about it again. So he it was an influential character in the way that he presented himself so, a lot. Do you not remember like in the early 90s when we were kind of, people were like, there was a certain segment of people that were like, the guy might actually be a vampire. Right. Well, that's when life was mysterious. Right, because you didn't see him and all the time. And you imagined... You know that he that he lived in a dark house with like spires and shit, and <laughs> you know what I mean. Wasn't life more drank, fun? Drank blood. Wasn't it more fun to think about people being that way, folks? Newsflash: the eighties were more fun <laughs> when you didn't know shit, and you kind of could imagine it. Sorry, kids. 
It was more fun back when we were kids. It was because there was mis- it was mis- mysterious. Prince was this hey, mysterious. I tell you, back in my day, <laughs> life was more he fun. He didn't know everything about the celebrities. They didn't have Instagram where they could tell you shit right to your face. All right, so uh, that's that's uh, in the flat field. Henry, what is okay. our last record? So our last record we're going to consider is a late entry. It is a late entry. So, so let's let's discuss that a bit. I, I had put in there because it made the all music right. Star and movie. I said no. What record was and then that? You said then you said what record was that? Um, Aerosmith's greatest hits. It was the greatest hits record. And so you made me listen to that fucking thing. And so I was listening to it. I was listening to it over the weekend, listening to Aerosmith's greatest hits. And got it in the can and was ready to go. And Chris says, hey, can we reschedule for Thursday? Because I haven't finished listening yet. We get to to almost we get to Wednesday. Chris is like, you're right about Aerosmith. I want to say, fuck you, man. Fuck you. <laughs> let, me, let me say this. I know it was a shitty, it was a shitty you, thing to it, do. It is kind of shitty. But I, I, when I was listening to the record on Wednesday, my thought was, not that I'm a big Aerosmith fan, I'm not, and not that I think I would even have given that record a good review, but I didn't think it was fair that this is their, this is like a canned version of every one of their best songs. I, I, I'm listening to it going, I wonder how bad the record is that some of these came from. Like, how do some of the filler songs sound? Mm-hmm. And Did then I'm thinking, that? well, I didn't even <laughs> want to go back in it, but I was thinking, that's not fair to the other artists that we're covering who are giving us their... A full record. They're not like here. Take all my no, best songs. They're speaking of the t- of a time, not of seventy seven. So we're making a rule for the show going forward. No greatest hits. No greatest hits records. So Henry, I had Excellent. to make a late sub. I know this record came out early in November. It came out like November third, but, but I slotted it in here. What is the record, Henry? The record is going to be Hawks and Doves by Neil Young. And the song we're going to play is. And the song we are going to play is Union Man. Okay, there's a reason I wanted to play that one as opposed to the other one that we had slated. This is my least favorite song on that on the album, by the way. I mean, that's a that's a hard decision because these aren't is not an easy easy record to like. <laughs> awesome! I, I think you've summed up your review in it's one not. sentence. Half of it, half of the record was put together from sessions back in the seventies. I and didn't the, know this. They were put together from a session for a record, though, called Homegrown that never came out. Yes. So it wasn't just random shit he had left on the table. 
it it was a project that didn't um, come together. But you're right. It's all this stuff from the 70s. And then what's the second half of the record? The hitting? second half is just um, is our songs with a band that aren't chaotic. The most, the most interesting, quote-unquote, okay, one is the Union song that we put on there. I don't know why you wanted to listen to Captain... Uh, I liked it better. God, um, that was boring as hell. By the way, the tale... This, it sounded like another song. By the way, the songs with the band, uh-huh. um, at least they were recorded contemporaneously with the album. So, this is this was probably the... He, the, the records before this was like, Russ Never Sleeps. I mean, it's a fucking classic, right? Yeah, and The Beach was in the 70s, too. So, he's... he's so, and, the guy had... And was, Harvest. He was so riding off high, some shit. Yeah. He was riding high. And all expectations were, and this is the thing that frustrates people with him: is the the spotty, create creative peaks and valleys that he'll go into. I don't see this though in as a creative uh, valley. What I see here is, and I think I like this about our show going back, uh-huh. seeing people's career arcs, whether you like it or not. And I, and I, I want to table it for later because I think it'll be interesting to discuss mm-hmm. what's coming with Neil Young. Uh, trans and I think the other one's called re something, uh, something like reanimator or something like Reactor. that. Reactor. Yeah. Um, where he gets to me, where he, this is him going, I don't know what to do. I know I don't want to do the 70s stuff anymore, even though that's what I, I nailed it, but I don't know where I'm going yet. Uh, creatively into the 80s. So this is his transition record that is like a, the flop. That, Here, that just Let me scrape some shit together yeah. and I'll put out a record because so, I'm headed towards skinny ties and weird uh, keyboards. This is my understanding from what I've read that would explain this pro- what happened to Neil during, this, during the 80s. This was when Ben was born. Ben Young, his son, had I think it's cerebral palsy. And so re- the report is that he had to spend 18... They were doing major ther- therapy sessions with the guy, with their son, like 18 hours a day, and that he was actively involved in it. But he would not allow his manager to tell the public what he was doing. And he was still on tap for... I mean, the, the contract was like, you're going to get a million dollars per album. That you put out. Right. You end up with this, a record like a sort of half-assed. <laughs> how do you say it? I mean, how, how would I accuse Neil Young of being a half-assed? But it's like, that's why the work that you got was weird. From what I read, I don't want to talk about trans too much, but I, I don't think it's any great. Uh, everybody knows he started working with Sense on that one. And he it was supposed to mirror uh, this disconnect that he felt with his son. Right, but I don't want to. Let's not get into so, that because anyway, I kind of like where he went in the eighties, and a lot of people don't. But I know we're, we're both going to like it. But we'll but talk the, about but why. This sounds like um, I I'm out creatively yeah. of any ideas. I know I've got something brewing, but this ain't it. So let me cobble together something to get that million dollars. Right. Um, right. I, I, in my notes, I've got this is the tale of two sides because you mm-hmm. got side one that is uh, the old stuff, and side two that he put together quickly, but. My next note is neither side works. It, the, it doesn't. The side yeah. one old stuff. I can see why Homegrown was a table project because it's not very good stuff. And side two just sounds. Like, I, there's interesting things, but they're not record worthy. 
And they don't. Stuff. It doesn't sound like a cohesive record. It's they sound like castoffs. You know, my my mind. I know it doesn't matter as much today because you don't look. Kids don't listen to records, but it doesn't sound like a record to me. It's not a cohesive whole. No, it sounds like two EPs. Yeah. So I was completely mm-hmm. surprised going into listening to it, going, "Oh God, Henry's really going to be mad at me." Not only did I make yeah. him listen to Aerosmith, but, but now we're going to review one of his worst ones. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, I can forgive Neil Young for all kinds of stuff, but uh, this is the shortest one he's ever done. Thank you. <laughs> but in some way, I like it because I think it's kind of a middle finger in some ways to to breaking off what he was before and trying some different shit because life threw him some curveballs. And I think I appreciate it more now than I, maybe I would have at if I'm if I'm time. coming to a break for what was going on at the time, because I I really do think he was in a creative uh, lapse, I I guess I'll cut him some slack, but I would have just said, don't put this one out. So uh, we're both going to go no on this one. Uh, don't don't bother with it. Um, listen to something else that he's got. So Henry, uh, for the episode, uh, what is your recommend of the episode? Uh, mine will be Making Movies by Dire Straits. This is uh, if you haven't heard that one. Um, go back and listen to it. You'll really like it. And mine is going to be Dirty Mind by yes. Prince. Um, I think this is one that might make my top ten for the entire decade. So, And it's also my favorite one. We've been agreeing lately. We're going to have to get some, some disagreements. So guess what happened? What's up? So I was driving down the road. Mm-hmm. You know I run the uh, 80s Music Exposed Instagram account. I don't. I haven't really looked at it, but yes. So I uh, hear that you do that. <laughs> <laughs> One could say I don't run it very well. <laughs> anyway. I wouldn't be in a position to critique it because so, I, I haven't looked. So I was driving down, and I got a message from someone who's looking for us. Wow. And her name uh, is Megan. Mm-hmm. And she proceeded to tell us that she's listened to, to our episodes and how much she liked it. Thank you very much. And in the ensuing time period, she offered to help us manage our social media presence, help us to, uh, you know, find our audience even better than what we've got now. So we have a new member of the team. Her name is Megan Maddox. We're going to call her. I think we should go with Mixtape Megan. Mixtape Megan. Mixtape Megan. And we talked to her um more at length, and we t- it turns out she's a super big uh, 80s music geek. She's also a lot younger than us, and she's female. So we thought, man, we could use a little bit of younger female perspective on the show. Right, a little youthful energy would be nice around this. So jerks. we were, we were, we thought we'd expand her role a bit. We asked her maybe she would like to do a five-minute segment at the end of each episode. Most of the time, just critiquing the records the same way we did, maybe critiquing us some. And she said yes. So this is going to be her first one right here. She recorded for us. She was nice enough to do that. So welcome, Megan, to the team. Right. And here it is. Here's Megan Drew. Mixtape Megan. everyone, uh, this is Megan, and this is my mixtape recap for you. Before I kind of get into the nitty-gritty of the episode, I thought I would kind of introduce myself. I do the social media stuff for the podcast. 
but I'm really excited to be doing this because I absolutely love 80s music. I know my nasally Midwestern accent is probably a bit jarring after Henry and Chris's Southern Draws. And without further ado, I guess let's get into this episode because, man, October 1980 is fucking stacked. I was really excited to delve into this one. The first album that Henry and Chris mentioned was Making Movies by Dire Straits. I really love this record. Um, I'm not a huge, you know, fan of Dire Straits, but I like them enough to like listen to them every now and then. And when I do, it's really this album. I, I like Brothers in Arms, which of course Henry and Chris mentioned is kind of like quintessential Dire Straits album. But I think this one is actually superior. I love the song Romeo and Juliet. I think it's such a romantic song and it always puts a smile on my face. I do want to mention, too, that, you know, Mark Knopfler is known for his great guitar playing, uh, and he also did some great work with Emmylou Harris, who uh, Henry and Chris, they reviewed an album of hers a few episodes back. If you like Mark Knopfler, I do recommend checking that out. It's a little bit different from the stuff that he did with Dire Straits. The next record is by one of my favorite all-time artists, Sprint and Dirty Mind. I love this record. It is so much fun to just put on and dance to. It sounds very timeless. He like redefined gender. Like I don't even know if I think of Prince as being a man, really. Like he's just Prince. Of course, uh, When You Were Mine is on this record, and I'm gonna have to agree with Chris. Uh, he likes Cindy Lauper's version of this song better, and uh, I actually do too. I think Cindy is great. But this record, Dirty Mind, is as relevant and provocative today as it was in 1980, which that's pretty incredible. One last note on Prince that I want to add. If you haven't been to Paisley Park, you really need to go if you're a Prince fan because it is so cool. Minneapolis, for me, is just such a great city um, musically. You know, of course, The Replacements and Husker Du and all these great bands are from Minneapolis. So it's really cool to go to the avenue and the entry, you know, where Prince and The Replacements performed and of course, see the wall with all the stars painted on it with the artist names. I definitely recommend going. The next record, oh, Bruce Springsteen's The River. And I know Henry and Chris, they kind of talked about how coming from the South, Bruce Springsteen, you know, he's known as being this really like voice of blue collar workers and union men, and they couldn't necessarily relate to that. But I'm coming from the Midwest where Bruce Springsteen is kind of a religion. Everybody in my age group, we were kind of born and raised on Bruce Springsteen because our dads listen to Bruce Springsteen. I would say this is probably one of my favorite, uh, if not my favorite, Bruce Springsteen record. And if I had to pick one for someone to listen to that had never really listened to Springsteen before, I think it might be this record. I think you just really get what Bruce Springsteen's about through this record. I love the dark shit on the river too. I think that's really what makes the river a Springsteen album. It really, it sets the stage, I think, for Springsteen's um, next works, including this very sparse Nebraska. So this record, I think, was very important in Springsteen's kind of evolution as an artist. The next record was In the Flat Field by Bauhaus. I love this record. It's, it's probably not my favorite Bauhaus record, actually. Um, that would have to be Burning from the Inside. But this record's great because you could really just tell they were taking their adoration for David Bowie and kind of just trying to make that into their own unique statement. You know, it's not a perfect record, but I love the direction that they went in with it. Um, I actually recently saw Peter Murphy with David J. 
in Detroit. I was honestly pretty apprehensive about going because I have heard before that like Peter Murphy is kind of a drama queen. And, you know, a few months ago, there was this picture floating around of Peter Murphy. He had just like thrown bottles into the crowd at one of his shows. And it was just kind of weird because, I mean, Peter Murphy's like my dad's age. So to think of someone my dad's age, you know, doing something like that, kind of upsetting and a little, you know, a little concerning. But it was a great show. And the last record that Henry and Chris discussed... So Neil Young's Hawks and Doves. I love Neil's stuff, uh, especially from the 80s, which is kind of an unpopular opinion, I think, with Neil Young fans. But um, I hadn't really listened to this record prior to this episode. I could totally tell that it's really not as cohesive as some of Neil's other work. Like, you could just kind of, once you know the backstories, this record, like, made more sense. It's it's good. It's not his best work. But if you're, like, a Neil Young fan, I, I think it would be, you know, a great one to listen to my recommend for this week because Dirty Mind was already picked and Making Movies um, was selected as well. I'm going to have to go with probably The River by Bruce Springsteen just because I love Springsteen and this record, it really is great. One record that I did want to mention that wasn't discussed was The Teardrop Explodes, their album Kilimanjaro. I I definitely recommend they're kind of like a post-punky band. They're not totally obscure, but um, I think that record it's worth listening to especially if you do like post-punk music so anyway thank you for listening i look forward to talking to you um over the next however many episodes and sharing my mixtape recap with you if you want to follow us on social media um we're at twitter on the 80s Music Exposed and on Instagram at 80s 374. If you want to follow me on Instagram, um, my handle is Bastards of Young 92. Yeah. So thank you for listening and rate and review if you fancy us. We want to hear from you. Bye. What do we got going on next month? Oh, next month. Let me look it up. I'll tell you because I got it pulled up. Okay, do it. Uh, we've got a little bit of Steely Dan. We've got some Motorhead. I know you're going to love that one. Uh, we got Blondie. John Lennon makes an appearance. Yes. REO Speedwagon comes in. I get to listen to an REO Speedwagon record. That's right. I know you're looking forward to that. And that'll be November. And you know what I else is coming up, which I'm very excited about? What? We've only got two episodes left before we get to do our year-end episode, where we get to pick our favorite records of the whole year, 1980. Oh, my God. And What are you going to do? It's going to be exciting. I can't wait it's for been a, I mean, it's been a really interesting journey up until now. Um, yeah. I'm really surprised by some of the stuff that I liked and didn't like this, in this year. What we should the show. <laughs> if you like our show or you like the records we're choosing, if you please rate and review us on iTunes. You can also listen to us on uh, Spotify and Stitcher. Share it with your friends. You can chat us up on Twitter at 80sExposed, or you can email us at 80sMusicExposed. That Twitter handle, did you know this, Henry? That Twitter handle looks like 80sSexPosed. I'm going to start saying it like that. You should. 80sSexPosed. Or you have to say, you see, we can't pluralize it. 80sSexPosed. 80sSexPosed. That's our Twitter handle. (laughs) I couldn't put the music in there. Or 80s music exposed at uh, gmail.com. Chris, guess what? What's that? I made you a mixtape.
interesting the nerdiest people. shit I've ever heard in my life. Oh, 